All right, everybody, welcome to the latest episode of Inside the Hexagon. I am your host, Phil Lanides, alongside my co-host, as always, Josh Molina. Josh, how you doing, man? I'm doing great today, Phil. How are you doing? I am good. Uh, I'm looking forward to uh, t- talking about this event. We're going to be going into Tank versus Buentello, the third ever Strike Force event. Very interesting card, uh, and so we're gonna we're gonna delve into that today. Uh, so if you're ready, let's let's go ahead and dive in. Let's do it. All right, great. So, of course, we want to talk about kind of the fallout from the last Strike Force event, which was Revenge. Uh, coming out of that event, we had a, a new Strike Force lightweight champion in El Nino Gilbert Melendez, as well as another rising uh, homegrown star in Kung Lee. Uh, I will mention, you know, of course, the, the embarrassing incident with the cage door opening during the Bobby Southworth James Irvin fight, as well as a pretty lackluster main event fight between Alistair Overeem and Vitor Belfort. Uh, and you could say both those kind of led a bit, a, a bit of a, a bad taste in the mouth of fans, so, uh, or the mouths of fans. But, you know, having a well attended solid event would really go a long way in restoring any confidence. Uh, that might have been lost. Uh, so we're we're going to jump into this this event, which that would be again Tank versus Buentello. Uh, uh, so let's talk about some of the fight announcements. Uh, announcements for its third event, Strike Force left San Jose for the very first time and ventured to Fresno, California, south of the Bay Area. And the main event was announced in early August of 2006 as Paul the Headhunter Buentello versus UFC Pioneer David Tank Abbott. Very interesting matchup. Tank was, of course, a UFC pioneer who had made his name in MMA as a bit of a, a glorified bar fighter and a strong man. Uh, I remember seeing uh, training footage of him bench pressing 600 pounds, doing curls with 125 pounds. I mean, you know, very strong guy. Known for his, his swagger, his attitude. Uh, you know, really that had been on display during his knockout victories over John Matua, Cal Worsham, Steve Nelmark, and Hugo Duarte during his time in the UFC. Uh, so, you know, that really made his, his bones, really made his name. It was really a big part of why the UFC became um, such a big deal. But he, he'd only won one fight since 1988. He'd lost five, or sorry, 98. Had lost five of six bouts all in the first round. But his name still had value, and, and, and bringing him in for a high-profile fight like this could, could sell some tickets, and that's probably what the aim was. You know, I had kind of heard the name Tank Abbott. Obviously, he was sort of this legendary pioneer name in the UFC, but I had never really associated him with Strike Force. I did not even realize that he had a uh, a run in Strike Force. I'd like to say a run. It was not. Re- I mean, it basically was you know one fight. And um, it was sort of like surprising to me because I got to go back and look at some of Tank Abbott's history and what he was known for and why he was a legend. And he definitely was emblematic of that early, very early sort of image that people had of what a UFC fighter was. He had a very great sort of uh, collegiate, you know, wrestling, uh, you know, background, but he was he was um, also like this incredibly heavy hitter so he's like an exciting fighter you know those people who used to say oh i don't like mma because it's always on the ground and i like boxing because there's more action i mean tank was definitely one of their kind of guys uh he was sort of an enigmatic name he fought a lot of great fighters uh if you look at his record uh but he himself is sort of sort of a mystery so i guess we'll talk a little bit about that later when we talk about this fight but i really look at this fight and i look at tank's career and think wow mma has has really evolved well and that's very true you could look at this fight as just kind of a great example of what tank was uh, or what what he ended up becoming in mma was that you know he 
comes in, they want to get a, you know, kind of a, 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 you know, a big, like a popper rating or, or a, a pay-per-view buy or whatever off his name. But what actually, you know, transpires in the cage is not really much to really be very memorable. And we saw this a lot with him in the latter part of his career as exactly as MMA evolved. He did not. And, and, you know, it was just basically killer, killer be killed. And you mentioned boxing. I, I wouldn't call what he did, you know, boxing <laughs> really, you know, it was really more tough man, just bar fighting type stuff. And, you know, you get in there with a trained athlete and, and you're not going to last long. And that's, that's what we saw happen. So somehow the, the fight gods missed, uh, Roy Nelson and take Abbott. Right? <laughs> yeah. Which, uh, you know, I mean, to Roy's credit, he's more, definitely more well, well-rounded than, yeah. you know, tank and he's got a better t- gas tank and all that stuff. But, but, you know, yeah, definitely kind of the modern day, more evolved version of him in a lot of ways. Right. Uh, but Buentello, you know, he already had over 30 fights under his belt. Uh, he had won three of four in the UFC prior to making his debut with strike force. Uh, he was a Texas native. He had moved to the Bay area to further his training with AKA and had a record of 22 and nine. Coming into this bout, his, his first two wins in the UFC earned him a title shot against then-champion Andre Arlovsky, uh, but he was knocked out with a straight right hand in only 15 seconds. And, and if you can go back and watch that replay, and it's it's it was a little bit of a an anticlimactic ending because when Arlovsky threw the right, it was kind of like a slip, and and you know as far as boxing goes, and you, it was hard to see, and and the commentators didn't even really know what had happened. But once you saw the replay, you could see he placed that right. Uh, right on the chin of, of Buentello, and that was all she wrote. But uh, he had won one more fight with the promotion with the UFC after being released and then headed to Strike Force. A few weeks later, uh, later in August, it was revealed that Wesley Cabbage Carrera uh, would take on Ruben Warpath Villarreal. Uh, and at the time of the amount announcement, Cabbage was a four-time UFC veteran with a lot of experience. He had a record of 18-10. and 10. He'd fought names such as Travis View, Tim Sylvia, Joe Riggs, Tank Abbott twice, Andre Arlovsky, and Butterbean. So Cabbage ha- had a lot of big fights on his resume, and, and this was going to be a very interesting addition uh, to this Strike Force card. Uh, for me personally, Cabbage is a very interesting fighter. He was actually kind of a favorite of mine when I was first getting into MMA because I really loved his his really go-for-it attitude, his willingness to stand and bang uh, no matter what. And, and one fight that really sticks out in my mind is his UFC 45 fight in November of 2003 with Tank, uh, where he won the fight due to a cut inflicted on Tank. And, and Cabbage, you know, he, he really showed, I mean, he showed some Muay Thai, uh, you know, uh, accolades in that in that fight and showed his experience uh, and really put a hurting on, on Tank. And, and after the, the doctor stopped it because of this cut, he did his his celebratory cabbage patch dance, which uh, kids you can YouTube that if you don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, but he flipped Tank off in his corner and Tank's corner. They come pouring into the cage, and I guess there were some water bottles thrown. And it really descends almost to a, into a big brawl, and it was entertaining. But as Joe Rogan points out on commentary, is exactly what the sport of MMA did not need at that time or or now. Uh, but it was, you know, it was a huge hullabaloo and, and it was just not a good look for the sport. And you could point to, uh, you could point to, to cabbage being the instigator that started it. Uh, ironically, tank would actually gain revenge, revenge a year and a half later in Hawaii, uh, when he knocked out cabbage, uh, in, in the first round of a, uh, of an event there, but cabbage, you know, unique and interesting and, and a controversial fighter for sure. So this was sort of like. Nashville before Nashville. Yes, Obviously, yes. it was not in not in a Strike Force the original, but um, yeah, that brawl was kind of crazy. I, I looked at that, you know. Um, 
Cabbage's display during that moment wasn't really the most sportsmanlike, obviously. The Cabbage Patch dance was hilarious. You know, anytime you have a big guy trying to dance, it's funny, right? And so it was definitely funny. The middle finger was was out of place, and there's only really a couple guys who can do the middle finger, and as you know, that's, uh, actually, I'll say there's three guys. There's Nick Diaz, there's Nate Diaz, and Stone Cold Steve Austin, but if you can't, you can't really drop a middle finger in the cage, you know, unless you're one of those guys. Um, it's just sort of out of line, and Joe Rogan was obviously right at the time, because, I mean, this is a thing where, even today, there's still sort of this attitude of, uh, it's barbaric, or, you know, it's not as finessed as some of these other, you know, combat sports like boxing or something, um, so... In, at the UFC at that time, you definitely did not want uh, anything to go that crazy and that wrong because it that's basically, you know, when kids, you know, when, when, when little kids trying to watch MMA on TV and mom walks in, that's the moment they see, they don't see all the great ground action. Yeah, no, it was, it was, it was a, uh, a devolution for lack of a better term that you don't want to see in a sport that's trying to gain mainstream credibility i mean this was that was a time you know the ultimate fighter had not come out yet and ufc was doing better since the start of the shamrock uh tito ortiz the ken shamrock tito ortiz feud but this you know they were still there were too many you know again bar fighters and guys that weren't training seriously this weren't you know there was too much of this kind of stuff there were too many antics like this that were still happening and when you're trying to get on a bigger broader broadcast stage and you're trying to get better sponsors and bigger sponsors and all that stuff this is the type of stuff they see and go oh i don't want my brand or my network associated with that so it was it was a bad look all the way around and, uh, and, and yeah, you know, so, so, but you can see both of them were announced for this card. So they both fighters still had name value and, and they're promoters that are going to be able to look past, uh, some of the other things sometimes, but, uh, moving on to Warpath, he was 10, nine and three and the fight was announced. He did also have some national name recognition. He had, uh, fought on a pay-per-view against boss Rutten, uh, in that legends final fight, just a few months prior. And just a, a quick plug Boss has actually agreed to come on the podcast to kind of give a, an outside perspective on strike force. So we'll have him on sometime. Uh, in the coming months but Warpath had also fought some big names he'd fought Dan the Beast Severn also Travis View uh, Rico Rodriguez Antonio Bigfoot Silva and Don Fry so a very experienced fighter in his own right uh, this would have been an interesting fight but it was unfortunately canceled due to a cabbage injury and Warpath was dropped off the card as well he would be brought back in to fight at the next event, uh, Triple Threat, against Paul Buentello. So we'll discuss that fight pretty soon. Uh, Cabbage, for his part, he would have his next bout canceled as well, for this time for undisclosed reasons, before he returned to the cage in early 2007, where he lost to Bigfoot Silva at an Elite XC event. He's gone 3-4 and four in bouts since then, with several fights canceled. Um, this included a nearly five-year absence from MMA as he served time in prison for burglary and theft. Uh, he'd, he's had a lot of brushes with the law. And, and he's he's had a lot of a uh, lot of issues, just just a lot of issues. Uh, he last fought in 2016, and, and he although he was actually scheduled to fight in Hawaii in uh, earlier this year uh, in 2020, but that bout was canceled for unknown reasons. Uh, you know, I mean, in my estimation, again, a guy that I enjoyed watching, but Cabbage really is a classic case of a talented fighter being brought down, at least partially by his his character or lack thereof, and, and decisions outside of the cage, which is which is sad. 
Uh, other fighters on the card getting specific announcements included Bobby Southworth, Jason Von Flew, and local Fresno State wrestling standout Casey Olson. As we mentioned earlier, Southworth had fallen victim uh, in the previous Strike Force events uh, revenge to the cage door opening during his bout with James the Sandman Irvin, uh, which we've covered extensively. Unfortunately, he actually would sustain a minor injury in training, and he was dropped from this card. But Southworth would fight for the inaugural Strike Force Light Heavyweight Championship at the next Strike Force event uh, trip against. And triple threat, which we will discuss uh, in, in coming episodes. His proposed opponent for this card, Anthony Ruiz, would instead take on a teammate of Southworth in, uh, at AK in Trevor Prangley. Uh, and we'll discuss Von Flew and Olsen more as we get to their fights. All right, as we like to do, we like to look at uh, the UFC and Pride events that were going on around the same time uh, as this, the Strike Force event that we are discussing. Very, very interesting event on the UFC side. You had Ortiz versus Shamrock 3, the final chapter, uh, took place on October 10th, 2006, and it was three days, which was three days after Tank versus Buentello. Uh, this, would have, this event would mark the third and final encounter between Ken Shamrock and Tito Ortiz. Always intense interest in, in these in these fights, uh, the, the, the bouts they had between the two of them, and this fight would be no different. Tickets sold out in two days, and the event drew an overall 3.1 rating on broadcast uh, for its broadcast, with the main event itself garnering a 4.3 rating, which translated into 5.7 million people watching the Ortiz-Shamrock fight, which was the most watched fight in UFC history at that time. Uh, so a, a very interesting fight. I always was a big fan of their feud. I was always on Ken's side because being a wrestling fan, uh, I wanted to see him beat Tito. And Tito, I don't like instigators for the most part, uh, despite what I said about Cabbage earlier, um, which I put for the record, I did not like what Cabbage did in the cage. I, I don't like that. And Tito would, would very successfully get under Ken's skin and, Real, I think it would get inside his mind, but I think overall, I mean, Tito was physically bigger and just a more well-rounded fighter, and he once again beat uh, Ken, and that's that's three straight, and that was all she wrote. Uh, in their feud, Shamrock would retire after the fight, uh, though that only lasted a year and a half. But uh, very interesting going goings on, so to speak, in that at that uh, that card. Hey Phil, what was the remind me this this fight this card took place on a Tuesday. Was this uh, a special UFC televised event or what was going on in the television landscape at that time? Do you recall? It was it was just basically an extension of um, kind of the 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 ultimate fighter type, like minor uh, or lesser shows like it wasn't like a full on pay-per-view show. I yeah. believe it was on cable. So it was, it was, uh, yeah, it was definitely on cable because it got a cable rating. Yeah, a TV rating. So, yeah. No, this was, uh, you know, I mean, there was, if I memory serves, I think there were 3,500 people in attendance. This was, mm-hmm. a, it was at uh, a, a Planet Hollywood, I think, or, or, um, man, you put me on the spot. Uh, uh, what's the, the Hollywood Rock? Uh, oh, uh, um, Hard Rock. Hard, Hard Rock. Rock Cafe. Yeah, yeah. yeah Hard Rock Cafe uh, in Hollywood, Florida. That's why I'm getting the Hollywood stuff mixed in there. So it was a smaller event, but like I said, it, it sold out. And yeah, it was a TV. Uh, it was a TV event. So this was post, you know, first season of The Ultimate Fighter. This was post uh, third season of The Ultimate Fighter, actually, I believe. Uh, so you know where they had coached against each other, and and mm. so this was you know it was a it was a big deal, and uh, it had a lot of interest. So yeah, that was yeah, and, and this might have played into when we'll talk about later about the attendance at the card that we're going to be reviewing. You know, maybe our people are like looking forward to that Tuesday UFC event, and they're just sort yeah. of not not going to spend money on the Saturday event locally. It, um, yeah, it's very it's very possible. I mean, obviously, Strike Strikeforce still didn't have national like, broadcast exposure at this point, so. Yeah. 
I don't know how much of that would have played into it, especially if you could stay home and watch the cable, you know, the UFC event on cable for free a few days later. But it's it's possible. Maybe they only had so much interest in MMA, you know, in, in a short amount of time. Yeah, I'm just thinking maybe the walk-up crowd, you know, Saturday night, they're like, do we want to spend money on this? Maybe we'll just wait till Tuesday. There's the big Shamrock yeah. Ortiz 3 kind yeah. of thing. Just interesting, you know, sort of the idea of, I mean, at that time, Ortiz versus Shamrock is a massive card. And yeah, they do it on huge. TV. TV was amazing. Yeah. So also on that card, uh, Tiago Alves beat John Alessio, future strike force welterweight champion. Nate Marquardt submitted Crafton Wallace who had fought on Shamrock versus Gracie and Matt Hamill decisioned Seth Petruzzelli. Uh, also going on around the same time, Pride 32 took place a few weeks after Tank versus Buentello, and it was the first Pride event to take place outside of Japan. Uh, it was also one of the last Pride events. There were only four more that would take place after Pride 32. Uh, this event itself would take place at the Thomas and Mack Center in Las Vegas. It drew just under 12,000 fans in attendance with just over 8,000 paid. A very, very memorable card. Um, it had several big-name, big-time fights, and, and the post-fight drug test revealed some, shall we say, questionable tactics as well. Uh, Strikeforce was strongly represented all over this event. Uh, as all told, eight past or future Strikeforce competitors fought on the card. Uh, we saw future Strikeforce middleweight title challenger Robbie Lawler knock out fellow future Strikeforce competitor Joey Villasenor with a flying knee in only 22 seconds. While another future Strike Force fighter and a guy who'd been doing commentary for Strike Force, Phil Baroni, got a technical submission over Yosuke Nikishi, uh, I'm sorry, Nishijima. I hope I said that right. Uh, and then Dan Henderson got a decision win over Vitor Belfort. Josh Barnett submitted Powell Nastula. Shogun Rua, uh, sorry, Shogun Hua submitted Kevin Randleman. And Fedor Emelianenko submitted Mark Coleman in a very, very uh, memorable fight. Uh, you may or may not remember uh, that the UFC actually did a uh, kind of where are they now type thing update on uh, Mark Coleman recently, which I watched. And he, they talked about, you know, his daughters come into the ring very, very upset after the fight and Coleman introducing them to Fedor and Fedor being very classy and trying to kind of console the girls and, and make them feel better after seeing their daddy uh, get beat, beat up pretty good. But, but very memorable event. After the event, according to SureDog, uh, Vitor Belfort and Powell uh, Nastula both tested positive for banned substances. Uh, Nastula for Nandrolin and Belfort for 4-hydroxytestosterone, so elevated testosterone levels. Uh, Kevin Randleman also provided a, quote, dubious urine sample, of which was stated, quote, it was either allegedly non-human urine or urine from a dead human being, uh, which was that was provided by the uh, no, the uh, Nevada State Athletic Commission. So, not a good look for the promotion. Pride always had questionable drug testing, uh, you know, uh, you know, procedures, and it's actually something um, that we're going to be discussing with Bobby Southworth in the future. That's going to be you. You'll be looking forward to that, I'm sure. But uh, not a great look for Pride. And uh, even though the events, the event itself was successful, the the consequences afterwards were were not a good look. Uh, but moving forward, let's get into the event details. Uh, so Tank versus Buentello would be the first MMA event to take place at the Save Mart Center in Fresno, California. Uh, the venue held a 14,000-seat capacity, but unfortunately, the Strike Force event would only draw 4,437 in, in, in attendance. 
Uh, could have been for a variety of reasons. I, you know, obviously, I don't know why. I mean, maybe, like you said, maybe that uh, Shamrock Ortiz event was capturing more of the MMA fans' imaginations, and so th- they didn't want to shell out money for this. Uh, you know, maybe the idea of maybe Tank uh, Abbott as a draw had lost his, his luster. I mean, Buentello was not a... Uh, well, I mean, can't say he wasn't a super. He was a super unknown fighter because he had uh, mm-hmm. just fought for the UFC heavyweight title not long before this. So, I don't know exactly why he had some good representation from local fighters, including a big Fresno State star. It just wasn't really, for whatever reason, it just didn't strike with the local uh, the local fans. And and you know, we we had a uh, only four thousand in a fourteen thousand seat arena. Yeah, it felt a little bit like a step backwards from a fight promotion point of view. We know, Phil, as wrestling fans, that too many companies have failed by trying to promote old stars and sort of say, hey, look at our company, while not promoting sort of the next generation of stars. And what Scott Coker did really well with the first show was sort of spotlighting a lot of young local fighters, right? So, you know, he had Gilbert Melendez, he had Kung Lee, uh, he had Josh Thompson, people from the area and others. And that was able to contribute to sort of this cool uniqueness. And I think with this show, it was a little bit different because we obviously knew that even the average fan knew the name Tank Abbott, but they probably knew that Tank Abbott was a bit of an older UFC name. And therefore, they weren't going to be getting maybe the best tank Abbott in his prime and so there might have been that perception that hey you know we can go pay some money watch this show the show doesn't have any tv yet and oh tank Abbott's on the card that's kind of cool but uh he's way past his prime and knowing that there's more free ufc coming up in a few days maybe that played into it but i just think from a promoter perspective when you have abbott versus buentello on the marquee you're essentially saying this is a nod to ex-uf ufc guys which um also maybe says they're not strong enough to be in the ufc anymore and and certainly around this time the ufc is branding itself as mma it's making itself synonymous with the sport it's not saying we're a brand of the sport they're trying to say they are the sport so i think that was a little bit up the undercard although we saw a lot of good jujitsu on the undercard it was also not as strong in terms of name fighters we lost a little bit of those local names we still had josh thompson on the card um and i just think it shows to the the sort of genius that scott cooker had with the first couple of shows having them at the shark tank and drawing from that local crowd and and making that walk-up crowd really really uh, possible and so i don't know it's sort of sort of interesting to sort of to look back as you know why did they go with tank versus ben Quintello as the main event yeah all valid points and you know it's uh, this is only coker's third not that i want to necessarily be an apologist for for coker for strike force but this was only his third mma event and you know still kind of grown pains and figuring out identity and all that stuff but you know as we've seen in pro wrestling when you put your promotion together based on cast-offs from wwe it tends to not do well long term like you need to develop your own stars and while they were doing that they were also obviously as we saw with with revenge they were trying to leverage the reputations and you know the name value of fighters that had made their bones in the ufc or elsewhere and you know maybe it was coming back to bite them but 
Uh, regardless, you know, let's move forward with the event. Yeah, on commentary, you had Brian Weber and Frank Shamrock. Uh, this was an untelevised event. Um, Phil Baroni, I believe, was there as well. Uh, so it was, you know, they, they did. I don't know exactly what they were recording for, but uh, maybe that's something we can ask Coker in the future. Uh, BodogFight.com would be the presenting sponsor for the event. Bodog was a, an online wagering company, actually very, very well known. And they'd actually already been putting on some of their own fight events. Uh, the BodogFight.com thing was actually a, uh, it was like an unscripted docu-reality series uh, where different fighters were going to compete. Um, but they, you know, they'd already put on events in Costa Rica, Russia, Canada, and they would put on some more in the future. And, uh, you know, interesting to, to kind of see a presenting sponsor there. All right, so let's jump into the the fight. It's the fights of themselves. Uh, in the opening match, Luke Stewart submitted uh, Jeremiah Metcalf via rear naked choke at 229 of the first round. Stewart was a, a jiu-jitsu black belt. We've discussed we've discussed him before. He made his MMA debut the previous Strike Force event, winning by submission. Uh, Metcalf would be making his Strike Force debut with a record of two of two and one. He'd been pretty busy previously, fighting three times in only five months, but against pretty substandard competition. I think it was pretty clear that. Uh, Stewart was the guy they were trying to build up here. Just one thing I noticed right away when we're talking about the show is that there was no Jimmy Lennon Jr. And so yeah. that was sort of a different kind of a vibe and a, a different kind of kind of feel to this this show was that it felt secondary in terms of announcing right away. But there's a lot of good things about this show we'll talk about later. But go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, and there is, uh, by the way, there is fight video, uh, or there's video of all these fights. Um, it's not on UFC Fight Pass, or there is, I'm sorry, I apologize. There is a video on Uf UFC Fight Pass. It's missing some elements. I think, like, it doesn't have, like, the, the fight packages, the, the, the video packages. Um, but I was able to find them elsewhere, and so I was able to actually watch the entire event. Uh, but Metcalf got a nice takedown early on. The ground battle commences. Stewart sweeps from the bottom, eventually gets uh, gets his back and sinks in a rear naked choke, forcing Metcalf to actually go to sleep. Uh, the the ref did a great job jumping in before you know any damage really could be done. Um, but a big another big win for Stewart. He looked really good here. Uh, he would fight several more times for Strike Force, while Metcalf would compete for the promotion two more times. So we'll discuss both fighters uh on future episodes it was sort of like a jake shields fight feel for me it was mm. on the ground instantly and it was technically very solid jujitsu and it was sort of like uh, amazing to sort of watch and see how they were going to get out of this and you know who was going to take who's going to go ahead who was going to be on top and then it ended of course very you know um in a, in a dramatic way but i sort of felt like wow this is like you know a jake shields jujitsu sort of master lesson that we're watching here and it was sort of an opposite of what would be in the main event. So ironic, you know, we'd see like two extremes of an MMA fight here in the opening and the final fight. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, in the next fight, some jabroni, um, some future jobber named Cain Velasquez, uh, TKO Jesse Vucharczyk, uh, with punches at 158 of the first round. Velasquez was very highly regarded coming into this fight, uh, which would be his first MMA uh, bout. He was a uh, the, the 2005 Pac-10 Conference Wrestler of the Year. He'd won 21 matches in a row while also placing fifth 
at the 2005 NCAA Championships, uh, which and he also earned uh, his first All-American honors. Fujarchik, uh, who he had lost to Daniel Pewter at Shamrock versus Gracie before getting a, a win in a smaller uh, organization before coming back. Uh, Kane comes out to Last Resort by Papa Roach, and in his pre-fight uh, video package, he said, "Yeah, he was very quiet as he is, and she said he just wants to be the best. That's all." Uh, so the the fight kicks off. They touch gloves, throw a few kicks uh, before Kane gets a nice takedown. He advances past guard to side mount, adma- advances more into a front crucifix, dropping some nasty lefts. Fujarchik works back to his feet, uh, which was which was you know very impressive to see. But he goes back down again, and after a few more strikes, uh, it's all over with. And Kane made a really big impression on the announcers. You could tell they were really trying to build him up, and he definitely looked like a star. Super comfortable in the cage. I mean, almost at ease. He just did what he wanted. Wanted to do. Um, it was a really great first win for one of the all-time great heavyweights uh, in MMA history. Uh, after this bout, it would be for Fujarchik's last MMA bout. He ended his career at three and two. Velasquez, of course, would fight. Uh, you know, f- have a good long career. He'd fight one more time outside the UFC before joining the organization, and as you probably know, would go on to become uh, one of the greatest heavyweight fighters of all time, winning two UFC heavyweight titles before retiring in 2019 with a 14 and three record few things here, Phil. I mean, this was so cool to watch. Um, Kane was young. He was hungry. He was ambitious. You could see that in his eyes. He had that eye of the tiger look. He was ready to do major damage. And he fought as close to a perfect fight as you can fight. He, he was conservative. He did not take any stupid chances. I mean, he clearly had the, his opponent overmatched, but he still fought like he had to do everything perfect in order to to win. And that's admirable. Uh, you take another guy who like Aaron Pico, who we've seen in Bellator, this sort of decorated amateur high school wrestler and they go into their into their pro debut and they're nervous and something bad happens and then they get rocked and then there's always sort of this like cloud over them of like can they make the transition we didn't see that with Kane like right away we saw with Kane that he was somebody who was absolutely in control of his entire space, you know? And so it, that part of it was was really, really exciting. You know, he would go on to obviously be one of the best heavyweights of all time. But the sad part is looking at what he was and then we, you know, what he became, injuries obviously limited him in the UFC. And uh, he was never able to sort of have that long tenure as the most dominant heavyweight because he took lots of breaks in between fights and he was plagued by um, injuries, you know, and he took some chances. I think one of the things that's exciting for me to watch about MMA and combat sports is watching sort of the, the love that they have for it at the beginning and then seeing with success with more people around you, with more pressures, fighters start to do things a little bit differently. You know, Cain Velasquez on this night probably would have been just about anybody, even though it was his debut. You fast forward to, you know, we know about when he got tapped out by Fabricio Verdum 
in Mexico City. He showed up late. He wasn't ready for the altitude. I mean, he started his training camp late, I should say, in Mexico City, and he wasn't ready. You know, little things like that, which you do when you're older and you kind of forget that, that desire that you have when you're a young fighter. And so I sort of like watching this, I'm just thinking, man, Kane could have been freaking John Jones in the heavyweight division. Um, and he almost, I mean, he was it to some degree, but of course, you know, uh, injuries plagued him and he had a couple of uh, unfortunate losses there that he probably should have, have won. And then of course, now I know the MMA community does not, probably know that Cain Velasquez had this little thing in the WWE, but for pro wrestling and MMA fans who understand, by the way, that one's one thing and another is quite the other, not trying to combine the worlds, but it's very sad to watch this decorated, legit professional fighter go in there and um, just have you know, a loss, whatever they all lose, loses to Brock Lesnar. That's okay. Brock's an MMA fighter. But, you know, when you've got Cain Velasquez on your roster, you can do so many things in a pro wrestling environment. And uh, they didn't do anything. They just sort of like wasted him. They had, they paid him a lot of money. Saudi Arabia, he loses. And that's it. He's done. And we don't see anything else. And I just, I think, Phil, you and I, if we had uh, Cain Velasquez signed to a contract, I think we could, you know, build a company around him, um, you know, give him a manager, let him do his thing. He has that intimidation factor. He's got that tattoo on his chest. It just says, I don't care. I'm tough. And it's just so awesome to see that in this moment. And again, this is one of the great things about Strike Force. We saw these guys early on in their career debut or fight early on in their careers right here and it's such an amazing story that began in this strike force company yeah i wish he'd had more strike force fights i wish we i mean we probably won't talk, discuss him too much more after this because this is the end of his career with strike force um i did want to say you know i like i actually got to sit down with kane at one point interview him at the uh aka gym in san jose and you know he was a nice guy um not, not exactly bursting with charisma and, and I, to be honest with you, like, he's a great athlete. And I saw, you know, I saw some of his, he had a, uh, uh, AAA, you know, wrestling match and he threw some, I mean, just really incredible moves for a guy his size. But I remember when he debuted in WWE on SmackDown, I mean, he physically did not look great. I mean, he's never been a bodybuilder type, but you know, his, his body, like he was, you know, pale and pasty and he wasn't, you know, cut or ripped or anything like that. I when I was really unimpressed when he came to the ring and I thought, man, you're going to put him in there with a monster like Brock Lesnar. Uh, it's just, they're not going to look like they're on the same, you know, they're playing the same game, so to speak. And I don't know if that factored into his two minute quote unquote loss in Saudi Arabia. I, I also want to say, you know, COVID he was cut from WWE because of COVID. He was part of the, the COVID cuts. Yeah. They, they've probably, you know, I think the idea was for Brock to get that two minute win. They were probably going to bring Kane back and do like a quote unquote rubber match. Cause Kane won in MMA Brock wins in, you know, quickly in, in WWE. And so you got to do a rubber match. I, mean, I, to be fair, I think they were probably planning something, you know, a little further down the line. Um, and, and who knows, maybe they still will. I mean, uh, you know, it would be great to see him go to, you know, like AEW or something like that. But, I, you know, Kane is, uh, Joe Rogan's talked about him being the, the best heavyweight of all time when you, you know, essentially when you don't factor in the injuries and that sort of thing and going several years between fights and all that stuff. I mean, that's going to, 
that's going to hurt you, you know? So I it kind of a, it, you know, it's um, great that he accomplished all that he did. He probably could have done more kind of, as you touched on without the injuries. Um, but so that, you know, there is a bit of a tinge of, you know, a little bit of sadness, I guess, in, in that, but, um, you know, we'll see what happens. There's, he's just getting started with his pro wrestling career and he's got a lot of, lot of options on the table i'm sure and so we'll you know we'll see what he where he goes from here yeah just quickly to your point i can imagine vince mcmahon looking at him without his shirt backstage and sort of saying what are we going to do with this guy i mean vince mcmahon being a guy who's fixated on bodies and not necessarily you know what it takes to win a real mma fight I can imagine that was a factor because I had that same thought when he came out. I think he came out in jeans on SmackDown. Yeah, yeah, he came out with Rey Mysterio and he had jeans with no shirt on. And he looked, I mean, obviously he was, you know, he's looked like a guy, he was like in good shape, but he didn't look like, holy cow, I want to be like that guy or like that guy's going to kick my ass. Like he was not like that at all. So I think there probably was a little bit to that. And of course, Brock Lesnar always looks, you know, unreal in terms of his physique so so yeah you know hopefully Kane can can come back at some point and 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 be able to contribute you know as a uh he doesn't have that charisma that some of these other fighters do but he definitely there's a lot of potential in that guy in a variety of worlds and for those of you who don't think Kane Velasquez can be a great professional wrestler go YouTube his drop kicks for the triple a they are yep. unreal. I think he did a, a, a Hurricane Rana. He did. He did. He, that's the one move that really sticks out in my mind. I couldn't believe a guy that size without his, you know, with just the little bit of Lucha Libre training that he that he has. Yeah. I couldn't believe that he was able to pull off a Hurricane Rana that early in his career. So, which for those that don't know, Hurricane Rana is essentially, I don't know, how do you describe that? It's kind of a, cause I, I'd say a power bomb. But <laughs> reverse powerbomb. Yeah, but then, but then again, how you know non wrestling fans won't know when that's so it is. Yeah, Basically, you, you jump up, you throw your your legs around, like you get your legs up on the shoulders, facing your opponent, and then you do kind of a backward roll and you throw your opponent over, and obviously they have to work with you and go with you. But uh, you YouTube it, and you'll know exactly what we're talking about. But you can find you can find the footage of him doing it, and yeah, I think he's got a lot of promise. I think you need to put him with. A manager that can speak, you know, that can give him, you know, uh, that can speak for him, you know, so to speak, and, and yeah. be a kind of a mouthpiece for him. But yeah, it's gonna gonna be very interesting. I mean, he's also he's not a young man. I mean, he's right around forty, so he doesn't have a ton of time left. But it'd be nice to see him get a you know two, three, four year run out of a, a wrestling career, and then you know do whatever else he wants to do. So absolutely. All right, so let's uh, let's move forward in the in, in the event. Uh, so yeah, in the next fight, you had Sam the Ram Spangler uh, stopping the Cisco Kid Mar- Frank McGallan with t- a TKO via punches at 238 of the first round. The Cisco Kid Kid was two and two coming into this bout. He had competed in Gladiator Challenge uh, and King of the Cage. Gladiator Challenge, uh, by the way, is also a former client of mine. Uh, I actually did PR for them for for man almost. The entirety of my five-year run in MMA. So I, Ted Williams, the promoter, a great guy. I got to go to a few of their events, and uh, I went to an, a, one of their events with my brother-in-law. And uh, I'll guess I'll quickly share that story. We were we were sitting inside the Golden Circle, as they call it, which is basically the cage or the fence around uh, the cage, and you have like you know f- officials and judges and stuff sitting inside that. We got to sit inside there, uh, so we were, I mean, right almost right up to the cage. And uh, in fact, the ring girls that came around were uh, very, very close when they came by. We'll put it that way. But uh, one of the fights, um, 
the guy got a got the other guy in a choke, and we everybody in the crowd saw that the re- the fighter was out. I mean, we all saw it, and the referee was out of position, just standing there, kind of watching it. And I mean, it was almost like full on riot. Like guys started climbing the cage to get in there to get the referee to stop the fight. And you know, the fighter that had the choke on, he was doing what he's supposed to do. You go until the the ref stops you. And he finally, I, th- if I memory serves, I think he, the fighter actually did let go, and as the ref was stepping in, and immediately the guy flopped over onto his stomach and started like convulsing, and um, he did, you know, he was okay. They he walked out under his own power and all that stuff, but it was a very scary moment, and this was. You know, still fairly early on in MMA um, being legalized in, in the state of California. And so I think some of the refs weren't as experienced as they needed to be. But it was a very scary. I remember that very, very clearly. But uh, anyways, um, so the Cisco kid had fought for that promotion. Uh, Spangler was 3-0 and coming into the fight. He was a part of Kung Lee's fight team. Uh, definitely the, the guy to watch in this bout. Um, you know, he was based on the, the way the video packages were set up. Uh, you know, it was pretty clear this was going to be the guy. Um, and, uh, you know, the Cisco kid, uh, if you watch this, he looked like a, looked a little weird. Um, he was wearing what looked like kind of a misshapen cowboy hat in his pre-fight video package, uh, which, you know, I guess goes with his Cisco kid, uh, gimmick, but, but not really, not really a great look. Yeah. You know, since we're talking about strike force and its growth and its rise you know part of it is the production and we talked about that at the first show and how good the production was they did something with this one where they had the interviews with the fighters right before they they came out and they had these curtains you know in the background and i just got to say purple is an amazing color <laughs> i love it but should never be a backdrop for a fighter interview at all it looked really hokey you know it looked like saturday morning wwf superstars <laughs> from the 90s i don't know if you remember that but from watching the, the fight but like i don't know it's hard to be like all into what i'm going to watch in the cage when you've got sort of these soothing calming colors <laughs> as a backdrop to uh, to the fighters talking and that's what i noticed with this with this show for some reason it just seemed um i don't know it was just slightly off from the first first two okay all right well, i didn't notice the purple uh, backdrop so that's <laughs> maybe you got an issue with purple that needs to be worked out with like a psychologist or a psychiatrist or something like that but <laughs> um anyway so jumping into the action t- good takedown early from spangler who works to uh works the ground to eventually uh, get the uh, get into full mount he ranged down some blows not much resistance from mcgallon and the ref steps in and stops it uh pretty quickly spangler he continued his undefeated start to his career while mcgallon didn't come out really looking great um, Spangler would compete twice more for Strike Force, while this would be the Cisco Kid's final MMA fight, ending his career uh, with a uh, with a two and three record. Uh, I wanted to sort of just say that this this was a fight that was won with a really good takedown. Okay, and that's such a good thing that people need to remember. You know, it's sort of like the head moves. Okay, and you can go for that knockout, but if you take down the body if you attack the body this was sort of an example of taking down good wrestling disarming the fighter and it's going to lead to that tko so you know what's cool about the show is that we saw a lot of good ground game a lot of good tactics a lot of good mma on the undercard which i guess kind of made up for the main event well this next fight i don't think i would classify as good mma 
Um, well, <laughs> Mike Cook submitted Carlton Jones via punches at 203 of the second round. Cook was 1-0 and heading into the fight. Jones was 1-2. and uh, Jones had actually fought two. His two losses were against two very big-time competitors in Shane Carwin and Glover Teixeira, uh, for what that's worth. And Jones was nicknamed the Councilman because he was a local councilman and would actually become mayor uh, the month after this fight. Uh, but when, when you get into the action... Jones striking looked pretty pedestrian in my view. Um, he did get a tank down, put uh, put Cook away. Uh, I'm sorry, pulled Cook away from the from the cage to the mat, land some strike a strike before getting Cook's back. But he also he gets reversed and Jones goes is underneath immediately. Who then reverses again? Big reaction from the crowd. Some good groundwork. Uh, but this that was kind of really it for like good action in this fight. The 34 year old Jones looked really tired to me uh, already. Uh, they stand back up and trade. Both fighters are looking pretty tired, so they kind of kind of you know blew it all on that that first uh, exchange. Cook gets the fight to the ground again, but gets warned for striking the back of the head, and now both fighters are even more tired. They're winging punches, not a lot behind them as the first round comes to a close. I mean, it's the type of exchange you might see at the end of a, a three-round fight or a five-round fight, but for that to be at the end of the first round, you know, that's not really a, a good look. Mm -hmm. uh, Cook looks like the fresher fighter opening up the second round. Jones is just absolutely exhausted. Uh, he does get a takedown, but Cook... Uh, catches a guillotine jones works his way out of it uh although that allowed cook to sweep from the bottom cook works some strikes and jones ends up submitting in a pretty weak uh tap i, I to me it's one of those ones where i'm pretty sure it was really more the exhaustion than the the power behind the strikes um neither fighter looked like a star coming out of this uh cook would fight a couple more times in strike force while jones would only fight in mma one more time ending his career at one of one in four uh, in 2008, but really a, a pretty, not a great fight, not pretty, nothing really memorable and, and just not, not something you really want on a major MMA card. Yeah. It wasn't really Kimbo slice versus Dada 5,000, but I wouldn't, put it, it was, that, I wouldn't it put was, it at that level, but yeah, yeah it, it was not like that at all, but it definitely had moments where I thought of that fight. I'm like, wow, these guys are so tired right now. And I think uh, Jones, you know, he sort of tapped out from fatigue. Frank Shamrock, you know, when he was a, a color commentator, was always talking about guys looking for a way out. And, you know, he was tired. The tap come, it might have been a way out, just a way to end the fight. This definitely was not one of the greatest moments in Strike Force history. It wasn't even one of the greatest moments on this card, which was, yeah. you know, fairly substandard by Strike Force's uh, standards. Yeah. Uh, the next fight was actually, I think, actually a great fight. I and I'll say this at the beginning: for some reason, even as I was doing my research after I watched watched the fight, I really had trouble telling uh, who was Philip Perez and who was Brandon Shuey. I I don't know why. Mm -hmm. I just really had a lot of trouble with this. Uh, I wouldn't even be shocked if somebody, either one of them or somebody that knows them, hears me talk about this and goes, you got the wrong guy. I, I, that, <laughs> honestly, that could happen here, and if it does, I apologize. Uh, but Philip Perez got a triangle choke submission on Brandon Shuey at 128 of the first round. Uh, Perez was an AKA fighter. He was 6-3 and three heading into the fight. Shuey, a very strong wrestler, was 5-3. and three, uh, And it looked like it would be a very competitive fight, and it would be. Uh, you get into the action. Good takedown by Shuey very early on with Perez grabbing a tight guillotine, uh, but he uh, able to escape after a few scary moments. Some great ground fighting, including a sweep by Shuey, but Perez latches on with a, an with a, a triangle choke from the bottom, and Shuey is forced to tap out. Uh, rather quickly, so not a long fight, but a lot of action packed in, packed into it. I, I thought it was actually a decent fight for how quick it was. 
This was a good competitive sort of back and forth fight. And it reminded me, I'm going to go into wrestling here, that I actually thought it was a go-go plata, but it reminded me to go research. Oh, the, and, the and Hell's, Hell's Gate? Hell, Hell's Gate. Yeah. It reminded me of the Undertaker's move that he like is, is never, ever able to put on correctly, yes, right. even a work, <laughs> even a worked way. I mean, right. the amount of time. The amount of times he has struggled, like you know, a, a four-year-old trying to wrestle with a three-year-old, is amazing, you know. So, but but it was a it was a great, really tight guillotine, and it was it was just like an awesome sort of finish, and it was short, but it was an exciting fight, and, and I really enjoyed it. It was definitely better than some other fights on this card, and uh, I do have to say that that just. I liked the groundwork. This was one of those uh, matchups where I liked the jujitsu. I liked the groundwork, and it was exciting to watch for as long as it lasted. Yeah, I, I definitely, I definitely enjoyed it. Both fighters were aggressive, had their moments. You know, a good, albeit short fight. Uh, this would be uh, Perez's last win, as he would lose uh, two straight after this before getting a draw in his final bout. Excuse me, in 2010, and Shuey would go two and two over his next four bouts, which would uh, which would end his career, and he retired in 2008 with a seven and six record. I didn't write it down, but I think Perez had, if I memory serves, I think he had a seven and five, uh, seven five and one career record, if I remember correctly. So neither fighter went on to have a memorable memorable MMA career, but they did put on a, a good fight here. All right, so let's jump into the uh, the main card. So in the opening match of the main card, we had Casey, the underdog, Olsen, uh, submitting Bobby, the kid, Sanchez, with a guillotine at 158 of the first round. Olsen was an NCAA Division I wrestler with an undefeated record uh, of 3-0, although Tapology.com puts his record at 4-0 coming into the fight. Uh, he was a member of the, the the pit fight team under former UFC light heavyweight champ Chuck Liddell and John Hackleman, uh, and he was from Fresno. So he was really a big crowd favorite, he got a big pop when he came out. It, it Just based on the, the commentators, uh, and and just everything that they the, the pre-fight video packages, uh, it really looked like they were trying to build up Olsen as, as a future star. Uh, meanwhile, Sanchez at 19 years old was two and one coming into the bout. He got a, a round of booze from the crowd uh, as again he was facing a, a Fresno uh, Fresno zone in in Casey. Olsen, big local collegiate wrestling star. So of course Sanchez is kind of got kind of going to be the uh, the heel to uh, to Olsen's uh, babyface. Once the fight started, you could see how strong Olsen was. I mean, he just very, very early on, uh, he takes the kid down, works him against the cage. Uh, Sanchez actually reverses, uh, but Olsen sinks in a standing guillotine. Olsen uh, reverses again, uses that position, sinks in another choke after Sanchez escapes the original attempt. He turns it into kind of a standing anaconda choke, looping his left arm under and grabbing his right, his own bicep, cranks it, and the kid taps out. Uh, Josh Kotchek comes in the cage to congratulate Olsen afterwards, who really comes out of this one looking like uh, he might be a, a star on the rise. Yeah, this was another good short fight and another good submission. Olsen, as you said, he just came out with fire. He came out hungry from the beginning. He fought smart, cautiously, and he did everything he needed to do. He was all in. And it kind of reminded me a little bit of like a Gilbert Melendez, just one little step ahead of his opponent's. Uh, most of the time and I mean you're right he, he, he had star sort of caliber written all over him at least on this fight yeah un unfortunately it didn't really go anywhere um, beyond that both fighters would compete in strike force again in the future um, so we'll discuss them a little bit more but Olsen did not end up becoming a star for the promotion did have a very respectable career uh, which again we'll delve into a little bit in future episodes 
right, in the next fight, live wire, Jason Von Flew landed an arm triangle choke submission on Eric Ray at, tw- at 222, the second round. Uh, Von Flew, another member of John Hackleman's pit fight team, was definitely the the name fighter coming into this bout. Uh, he just had a three-fight ri- three run in the UFC after competing on the Ultimate Fighter Season 2. Uh, he went 1-2 uh, and two officially in the promotion since uh, tough fights are considered exhibitions, uh, but he had used what was called, what, what we now call the Von Flew choke to get his lone uh, victory, and we'll talk more in the UFC, and we'll talk more about that in a minute, but very, very experienced fighter already coming into this. Uh, Eric Ray, for his part, he was an undefeated American Kickboxing Academy product at 5-0 and coming into this bout, uh, but this would be a very big step up in competition for him. I looked at his record. I didn't recognize any of the names. Uh, his previous wins had all come on regional shows, so this was going to be a big opportunity for him, but probably more of a, a setup for uh, for Von Flew to, to you know to really establish himself coming out of his uh, his time with the UFC. Uh, but you jump into the fight, some trading early on before Ray gets live wire to the ground. The commentators mentioned that Von Flew works with uh, Chuck Liddell, so kind of trying to to you know use some or borrow some credibility there. Uh, Ray grabs an arm that he works into getting Von Flew's back. Ray goes for a rear naked choke, but Von Flew is able to withstand that and he sweeps, taking top position, good back and forth on the ground. Ray, uh, Ray grabs a guillotine, but Von Flew shows his experience and works his way out of danger. Ends up back on his feet with Ray now on his back. Uh, Von Flew actually dives back into Ray's guard as the as the round comes to an end. In round two, things stayed on the feet for a while with Ray looking very, very tired. Uh, they're trading with some fairly sloppy punches before Ray ends up on his back. Von Flew was landing from the top. Ray is just leaking energy. You can see how tired he's getting. A live wire works in a side choke, and, and Ray ends up tapping very, very quickly. Uh, fatigue likely a factor here, and on replay, it didn't look like Von Flew uh, really had the choke in, uh, but I, I just so I think Ray was just really, really spent. Very entertaining fight, uh, but I think Von Flew's big fight experience was was the difference. Now, did Brock Lesnar use the Von Flew choke to defeat Shane Carwin? Is that the same choke? Did you, do you remember I, that fight? I honestly, I do not remember. I honestly, I remember how tired Carwin was in that fight, but I do not, I actually don't remember. I'd have to look that up. I mean, every other fighter in the world, the referee would have stopped it. Shane Carwin killed Lesnar in that round, and uh, they let it go, and he just got so tired. But I'm pretty sure it was the Von Flew choke. It was sort of a, a side uh, triangle choke. But um, what I noticed about... This was this was uh, I don't want to say a good fight, but it was entertaining to some degree. When you know they were tired, they were throwing some punches. It had kind of a Rocky movie sort of feel in the sense of these guys were swinging haymakers and landing, and uh, they were just sort of standing in front of each other. And so I sort of thought that was kind of um, entertaining. I did not like the the camera work, and it sort of came up throughout the show but definitely in this match where they sort of would zoom from outside of the cage and they would come above it and then go into the cage it was very distracting it was very artsy i have not seen them do that in other types of um well in 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 most of the fights that are televised i don't know if they're trying to get the crowd trying to get shamrock trying to get the announcer we don't know what it was filmed for um other than just you know historical purposes but um i don't know if you noticed that though but the camera work on this show was another thing that was a little bit different than the first first two uh but this fight was i i want to say entertaining it was not not great is not good as the 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 you know some of the other fights on this show 
Uh, I did not notice that, but that's why uh, that's what we pay you for. So uh, <laughs> appreciate the insight on that. Um, I, I, as you were talking, I quickly looked up um, the uh, Lesnar Carwin fight, and I'm looking at a picture of the uh, the fight ending choke, and it's definitely an arm triangle choke yeah. um, that that Lesnar got on Carwin. So I don't I don't think that was a side choke, but it was from the side. So I guess technically it's a side choke, but. Um, a little bit, a little bit different though than what we're than what we're talking about here. So yeah, um, but it was ended up you know good win for Von Flu who go down goes down in history as the man who popularized uh, the Von the Von Flu choke. Apparently, from what I've read, it was around before him, but he's the one that really kind of put it on the map. So his place in MMA history is secure. Uh, he would fight a couple <laughs> more times in Strike Force, so we'll discuss him a little bit more in the future. Uh, sadly, this would actually be Ray's last MMA bout. He ended his career at 5-1. and one. He actually passed away unexpe- unexpectedly just a year later in 2007. Uh, he was scheduled to fight for a title in Gladiator Challenge when he died suddenly, and I found an article where uh, John Fitch um, who was apparently a good friend of his stated that uh, Ray actually died of an accidental pain pill overdose that was related to uh, a surgery that he had had. And it was actually part of the reason why um, he Fitch became such a supporter of medicinal marijuana use. So very interesting, but I, I was not aware of that. Um, I was looking into, you know, because he wanted to become a boxer and people had some really good things to say about Ray. And then, you know, it ends up, I found out that he passed away, unfortunately. So, uh, kind of a, a sad, sad end to his his life and and his career as well. Uh, moving on to the uh, the next fight, we saw the South African hammer Trevor Prangley submit El Toro Anthony Ruiz uh, with an armbar at 4:42 of the first round. Uh, Prangley was a 1996 national wrestling champion in South Africa, an alternate for their Olympic wrestling team. Uh, so really, really strong wrestler. He actually moved to the U.S. to further his wrestling training, settling in Idaho. Uh, I don't know that Idaho would be the first state I would pick to move to, uh, but I'm sure he had specific reasons uh, for that, and he ended up uh, connecting with a local junior college and doing very, very well for himself in wrestling there. Uh, eventually got into training jiu-jitsu before trying his hand at MMA. Uh, coming into his Strike Force debut, Prang was already very experienced. He had fought some really big names, carried a record of 12-4. and four. Uh, In fact, he had actually handed Chael Sonnen his first career loss. They were both undefeated heading into that fight. Uh, and he had also beaten on, uh, Matt Horowitz, Andre Semenov, and Travis Luter. Uh, he went two and two in the UFC, losing by decision to Jeremy Horn, and then uh, Chelsea got his uh, revenge in a rematch. Uh, again, losing to him by decision as well. Anthony Ruiz also very experienced uh, coming into this fight, fourteen to nine record. Uh, so this was going to be, you know, a very interesting scrap between two very very experienced fighters. Uh, so once the fight started, they traded knees against the cage early on before Prangley knocked Ruiz off balance and got him to the canvas. Uh, Prangley worked from the top, throwing some strikes before going for an arm bar. Uh, Ruiz was was battling, trying to uh, trying to deal with all that. Showed some some real slickness uh, by escaping and trying to get Prangley to his back. Uh, eventually, Prangley works a standing guillotine against the cage before they they get separated, and he throws a couple strikes. The fighters clinch again. They were both expending a lot of energy. Uh, Ruiz loses positioning and Prangley capitalizes getting his back before transitioning to an arm bar. And he gets it on and this is where the weirdness sets in. Uh, the ref steps in and stops the fight without Ruiz tapping. And El Toro, very, very unhappy. Uh, I don't blame him for that. 
Uh, Prangley, he had it in. I, I, I really think that Rees would have either tapped or snapped. I, I, it was, I think it was, uh, I think he had it in, but, but unfortunately, because the referee will never know, uh, the crowd really, really booed when Phil Baroni went over to interview Prangley, which wasn't really fair to him. He showed a lot of class, uh, you know, saying he understood the crowd being upset, offering a rematch. Uh, but the thing that really stood out to me was just how strong Prangley was. I mean, I, I like I said, I think Ruiz got robbed of an opportunity there to at least try to fight his way out of it. But it looked, you know, again, it looked to me that Prangley had it. And a guy, a wrestler with the type of tendon strength and grip strength that a guy like Prangley has, I just, I think that would have been it. Um, Ruiz also pointed out escaped an earlier armbar in that round that was really impressive, just rolling right out of it. Uh, so uh, while it's not likely that he would escape the second one, you know, the rules are the rules, and I believe you have to let a fighter decide whether or not he's going to tap uh, and, you know, how long he wants to stay in a submission. Both fighters would fight for strike force again in the future, including Ruiz getting a title shot. Uh, we'll discuss both of them more as we go along. Uh, and Prangley uh, has agreed to come on the podcast, so we'll, we'll likely have him on the show pretty soon. You know, uh, Trevor Prangley was the first person I ever interviewed, first MMA fighter who I ever really? interviewed. And, really? um, I, yeah, I don't remember a lot about the interview. It was a long time ago, but I do remember he was super cool, super nice, uh, genuine, and took a lot of time with me, which is not always the case with every MMA fighter, as you know, uh, when you interview them. So Absolutely. I, I do I do remember he was a real sort of um, class act. Um, I don't think that there's um, any way that Ruiz would have escaped from that uh, second arm bar. Um, it was locked in, and yes, the referee made a mistake. Uh, you've got, referee's got to let it go. Got to let the fighter decide whether to tap or not. But um, I don't think he was going to get out, so he might have saved his arm there a little bit um, yeah. for sure. You know, he did escape an earlier one, which was right. interesting. I don't know if yeah. you caught that. He kind of rolled yeah. right out of it, and that was super impressive. But um, yeah, that that was a, that was a, that was a good fight. It, it, fortunately, it ended that way. Trevor Prangley was. I don't know how you felt about him, but. I, I, he was always exciting and he was sort of like a jack of all trades. I felt he was sort of always sort of like chaotic in the ring. He could do lots of different things all the time. And uh, you kind of know what he, what he was going to bring to you and how he was going to come at you. He was obviously very skilled technically as a wrestler, but he could knock you out too. And I really enjoyed that about him. Yeah, I liked watching Prangley fight, and uh, mm -hmm. I'm looking forward to uh, to having him on. So, uh, all right, let's get to the co-main event. Josh Thompson submitted Dwayne Bang Ludwig with a guillotine at 436 of the second round. Um, Thompson had rebounded from his Strike Force lightweight title loss to Clay Guida to win two straight, including beating Harris Sarmiento at the last Strike Force event. Uh, he'd also won about at a regional Idaho show, uh, so he was back on the upswing and lo looking to position himself for another title shot. Uh, Bang was coming off a decision. Uh, in a, uh, a kickboxing match, or I'm sorry, a, a draw in a kickboxing match for K1, but had lost to uh, Tyson Griffin via punches at Strike Force Revenge just a few months prior, so he was looking to, to right the ship here. Uh, jumping in the fight, Thompson gets an early takedown, not giving Bang a chance to throw hands, probably a smart move. Uh, Ludwig does, good a, does do a good job of protecting himself, eventually working his way back to his feet. 
but Thompson's able to, to get it back to the ground, taking Ludwood's back. Uh, the punk lands some really good shots while trying to advance positioning, briefly getting a figure four body lock on. Uh, Ludwig hands, hangs in there, getting back up, sporting a pretty good mouse under his right eye. But Josh is just all over him, uh, actually ends up getting, uh, you know, he, he's just all over him. But Dwayne actually ends up getting Thompson's back and sinking in a rear naked choke. Uh, but the punk's able to stay calm, able to reverse position uh, as the round comes to an end. So great round for Thompson, although Ludwig really did show a, a good job, too, of getting getting very close to the rear naked choke. Uh, Ludwig, who is a protege of MMA legend Boss Rutten, uh, he got taken down once again early in the second round. Uh, Thompson spent most of the round dropping punches and working to advanced position, just smothering bang. Uh, Ludwig's right eye was closing. And he was looking the worst for wear. You could definitely see uh, the damage that was being done to his face. Uh, towards the end of the round, Thompson got some separation and landed some really good strikes. Lud Ludwig tries to scramble up, and the, the the punk catches a tight guillotine. He sits back, and Ludwig has to tap, and, and that's all she wrote. A uh, really great fight for Thompson. He showed how well-rounded he was early in his career. Uh, in the post-fight interview, he's extremely elated. He makes it clear he wants a title shot uh, for his next fight. You know, tough fight for Ludwig. He showed his his toughness and his tenacity, but uh, definitely Thompson was 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 the guy with his uh, hand raised after this bout. I don't know if you noticed, but the tail of the tape, the graphic said Thompson had a record of 32, two and one. I did not but, see that. That is, and, that is an impressive record. <laughs> I, I not, not true. Unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. I think he was 11, two and one. I freaked out. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, I was like a whole thing that I never do about this guy. <laughs> and I'm like, that must be a mistake. Cause you know, not a lot of MMA fighters certainly nowadays get that many fights, but um, this was a great Josh Thompson fight. You know, he's full of heart, grit, lots of technique technique but by no means is he a technical fighter he's definitely a guy that you know you want in your team he gives a hundred percent and he goes there not just like survive he goes there to win and if you're gonna beat him you're gonna have to beat him you're not gonna get away with sort of an easy sort of victory he kind of reminds me of like a michael chandler type fighter just mm. somebody who is gonna go in there all the time and like he's gonna either beat you or you're gonna beat him but it's gonna be uh, you know decisive and uh josh thompson We'll, we'll talk about him a lot, but he always brought the best out of everyone he fought. And and Ludwig, this poor guy, I mean, he took a beating. If you look at his face afterward, I mean, obviously he had the mouse, but I mean, he was just so weathered. I mean, it's just Josh Thompson did a lot of damage in this fight. No doubt. And as you mentioned, we'll be talking about Thompson a lot in the future. We'll also talk about Ludwig in the future. They both headlined uh, upcoming Strike Force events. Uh, so we'll discussing we'll be discussing both of them, and both of them have agreed to come on the podcast. Uh, so we'll 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 be talk we'll be hearing more from them in the future. All right, we're finally arrived. Here we are. It's the main event. The headhunter, Paul Buentello, knocked out Tank Abbott at 43 seconds of the first round. Uh, in the lead-up to the bout, I found an interview with uh, Tank um, that he gave to MMA Weekly. He had some interesting things to say. Made it pretty clear he hadn't trained for Buentello specifically. Uh, he also talked about his desire to fight uh, Ken Shamrock, as well as the, the weak state of the UFC heavyweight division at that time. He said, and I quote, I'm not really enthralled with the talent they have. They got that guy that's like a sack of potatoes when he's not on steroids, Sylvia or something like that. He's their main guy, and then they try to build up other people. I'm sure when my mind is right and I'm in physical condition, I'm pretty sure I can give them a run for their money, end quote. Uh, Tank, I, can, I can tell you right now, Phil, that you know if I'm in good condition and yeah. my mind is right, I can do a lot of damage too. Yeah. But that's a, that's a big if, though. Yeah. That's hard. 
Yeah, <laughs> I, know? Don't, I don't know that you have the right hand power of Tank Abbott, but <laughs> no. But I, I mean, what my point is, like, of course, Tank. Like, yes, that's but that's the whole thing. That's the whole thing of life. Is like everybody can be anything they want, but what separates those from who don't? It's putting in the work to get there. You know, yeah, so I just it's kind of it's kind of like a BS comment. Like, well, of course, but hell, are you going to do that? No. Yeah, you know? <laughs> and obviously he wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, well, Tank also revealed that he was on a one fight deal with Strikeforce, saying he actually preferred that over multi fight deals. Um, so, it was an interesting interview with him. You can find it online if you want. Uh, also, coming into this fight, Buentello, as we mentioned earlier, he just won his last fight with the UFC after losing a title shot against then champ Andre Arlovsky. Uh This would be a chance for Buentello to establish himself as the heavyweight to beat in Strikeforce and maybe get a crack at another world title. Uh, we jump into the action. Really not much to speak to here. Tank, you know, when he fights and, and you see Buentello in there, it's going to be a banger. And you had to think this would be a short one, and it definitely was. Uh, 41-year-old Tank Abbott, as expected, got a really big reaction uh, from the crowd. They, the fighters trade early on. Tank gets cut almost right away. Uh, he has Buentello pressed against the cage, throwing some big rights as he normally does. Uh, Buentello circles away, lands a clean straight right hand to the chin. You could see it on replay. I mean, it was super clean, right to the chin of Tank, knocking him down. Buentello follows up with a knee to the body, but but Tank's done in under a minute. Uh, and again, on the replay, you could just see that right hand sneaking very cleanly through Tank's hand. Hands and which were low, and that was it. Big signature win for the uh, for the AKA product. Yeah, I was not impressed with Tank Abbott at all in this fight. Um, I probably because I'm looking at him through the lens of um, today. I think for you know he's one of these guys who's his legend is certainly greater than what his actual reality was. I mean, clearly he hit hard. You look at him; he's got these monster fists and his upper body. I mean, he is a strong dude. Uh, but at a time when the sport was trying to transition away from the, the bar room or the backyard fighting, you know, Abbott seemed like he was past sort of his moment. I mean, it was not really, we weren't seeing a lot of that. Of course, we would see Kimbo Slice go on this like incredible run uh, a little bit, I guess, after this. But uh, that was sort of an anomaly and he was very protected until he wasn't and then he got exposed. But, um, you know, the thing with Tank was, you know, he like you said, he walked in there, his hands were low and uh, he got caught, you know, he got caught, you know, and give, give, give credit, you know, that was a fast if you watch that, it was a fast right hand. I mean, it, it was not, he was not swinging a, uh, a haymaker at all. You know, like, like Tank got hit. He didn't see it coming. Those are always the ones that hurt the most. Um, as I typically do with this stuff, I got caught in a YouTube link with Tank Abbott. And uh, did you ever see him against Goldberg? Do you see I, that match? I, I know I've seen it before. I don't remember it, though, to be honest with you. Well, I mean, it's just like amazing pro wrestling because, yes, we know it's worked, but the amount of, like, energy and, like, you felt like that was a huge deal and Goldberg just kicked the hell out of him. Um, and, and Abbott, you know, actually, Tank Abbott, he he um, he worked it well. I mean, he, he took some great the offense from, from Goldberg in that. But, I mean, it was sort of like just that's what's tank abbott's world he should have been a pro wrestler and he should have he should have done that because he would have been great just having that sort of um you know that body type uh but um of course hindsight is twenty twenty. josh thompson probably should have been in the main event here and tank abbott underneath uh but you don't know how these fights are going to end and you don't know if they're going to be good fights or bad fights but um, that was sort of the impression i got was like Wow, we saw like some good jujitsu on this on this card. We saw some good submissions. 
kind of a letdown in this main event. So I kind of don't know how I feel. So as I'm leaving this Strike Force show, I'm sort of feeling like, hmm, maybe not as excited about this brand as the first show. But as we would find out, you know, Strike Force, they learned from all of this and they were building the stars later very quickly. Well, and Buentello would be one of those guys that they were looking to build around, and that's why this fight was set up. Uh, you know, he'd compete several more times for Strike Force, including fighting Alistair Overeem uh, for the inaugural Strike Force Heavyweight Championship the following November. Uh, so we'll discuss him more in the future. Tank, for his part, he was one and done with Strike Force uh, in and out. He would compete four more times in MMA, winning just one of those fights uh, while losing to Kimbo Slice at an Elite XC event. Uh, he actually had a liver transplant in 2018. Uh, he said it was due to his his, his hard living lifestyle, uh, and actually said he died. He had strokes and died multiple times on the operating table. Table. I encourage you fans to to look him up, Google him. Uh, there's he looks totally different now. There's a a really interesting photo of him with Clint Eastwood. That's worth looking up. That I think is from 2000. I think it's from last year, uh, from 2019. So. Uh, you know, definitely worth Googling to see what he looks like now. Uh, he had a, co- a podcast going for a while, but I don't think it's, I don't think there's been any new episodes recently. And I saw his name linked to a, a, a book, like a novel that was just published on Amazon. So he's still got some things going on. Um, but, uh, but yeah, just a, obviously tank is one of the, you know, kind of OG characters from MMA and, and, uh, this would be all we would see from him in, in strike force. Uh, but that's, that's the event. I mean, all fights on this card ended in a stoppage none made it even into the third round. So an entertaining card, you know, no doubt that had its movements, but, but not something that I think, you know, you're going to hang strike forces, uh, credibility on by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but, uh, we, you know, we'll, we'll see, we'll see what we got coming ahead. Look at, looking up ahead. We actually will be interviewing AKA founder Javier Mendez on next week's show. It's a great chat. We delve into his background, his relationships with Scott Coker and Frank Shamrock, including having something of a falling out, uh, with Shamrock, his involvement with strike force early on, uh, training Cain Velasquez. We talk about Daniel Cormier some. I mean, it's a it's a great great chat. So uh, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, and then after that, we're going to cover Strike Force Triple Threat, which featured Josh Thompson, Dwayne Ludwig, the return of Kung Lee, Paul Buentello, uh, and Bobby Southworth taking on UFC veteran Vernon the Tiger White for the inaugural Strike Force Light Heavyweight Championship. Uh, also on that card, legendary female fighter Gino, Gina Carano made her uh, made her Strike Force debut. Uh, and speaking of Southworth, um, we're actually going to be talking to him for the episode after that. Talk about uh, this fight with Tiger and uh, what, what it was like to to win the Strike Force. Uh, light heavyweight championship and and as well as his time on uh the ultimate fighter so i'm looking forward to to that chat as well but that's what we've got coming up and uh looking forward to getting to those episodes yeah we got a lot of really exciting stuff coming up for sure yeah so uh well i appreciate you walking through me with uh walking through all these fights with me josh uh, so you're just if you got a takeaway for this event um you know what what is it not not a great event some good moments but kind of what's your overall thoughts on the card well, you know, I thought like there was some good stuff on the undercard. I like the fact that we saw some good submissions. We saw some jujitsu. We saw some good groundwork. Josh Thompson was definitely uh, somebody who, again, here he is. You know, he's fought on all these cards so far, and uh, he's he's definitely a star who's emerging. A lot of uh, questions about the card. You know, why Fresno? Why did they choose to do it that way? Why did they leave the Shark Tank and, and try it? I guess they're sort of expanding, you know, to their reach. But, you know, what we're seeing overall is Strike Force is a brand that is growing, and it's growing 
at a pace that it can manage and that it can handle. And fighters want to be in strike force. It's both a home for people who've had their time in their UFC, but it's also a home for people, particularly in the Bay Area at this time, to start to be with a company that's on the rise. And Scott Coker did a great job of bringing those things together and celebrating those two. And uh, just think of everything we know so far in just three of their shows. You know, we've got, you know, the rebirth of Frank Shamrock. We've got the debuts of Kung Lee and Gilbert Melendez um, and Josh Thompson. Not their debuts, but, you know, their their sort of emergence. And so many of these other stars. We saw Cain Velasquez on, on this card. And then lots of guys who would come go on to be bigger fighters, greater fighters in other places. So I think sort of the takeaway of this card is, you know, in some degree, it's a little bit forgettable, but in the history of Strike Force, you kind of have to have a card like this to learn from it. We learn more. Promoters will learn more from the mistakes they might make in a show, whether it's in terms of booking or location or fight promotion than they do if everything goes off perfectly. So that's one of the takeaways here. And uh, as we would know, you know, things would just get much better going going forward with for strike force absolutely well josh i appreciate your time uh this was great i look forward to to doing more episodes with you in the future fans we appreciate you tuning in make sure uh you look us up on twitter on on and on instagram you can find us at inside the hexagon pod uh you can also search for our our podcast on wherever you found this episode uh and we look forward to to all the support that we're going to have in the future as well thank you to all the the fighters and the different strike force personalities that are helping us promote um, from social media the different journalists that are helping we just really exciting to see everything that's going on uh we look forward to more but with that uh we're going to go ahead and uh, ride off into the sunset so stay stay safe stay healthy and uh we'll talk to you again soon take care Infatuated with comic fandom comes a show to help us remember the talents that have inspired us. Whoa, 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 cut. Oh, come on. It wasn't that bad. It's a bit dramatic. Let's just tell them about the show, guys. We are the Canned Air Podcast. Join us weekly for a comedic trip through pop culture. We also welcome some cool comic creators, as well as some of the voice and screen actors that help shape your childhood. Find us on cannedairpodcast.com and on the Evergreen Podcast Network. 